right, let's finish up part one of Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita today. Um, so, in very much contrast to the last lecture, which naturally went, again, very long because we had two extremely dense chapters with a lot to talk about there, um, this last section is actually pretty light on substance, um, although it's a pretty heavy on fun. Uh, so we'll work our way through the chapters and hopefully uh, conclude a little early today. Um, so this is basically like everything in the way of comeuppance thus far. Like we're only halfway through the book. Um, this is the end of part one, but part one and part two are very distinct from one another. Um, and as much as we will, you know, get even more conclusion towards the end of part two, we're going to have a radically different approach with a radically different style and new characters and all sorts of things. Um, so this is kind of very much the conclusion of what we've been dealing with so far. Uh, all the characters that we've run into at this point reach their conclusion with the exception of Ivan Homeless and the Master, um, and naturally the Devil's Retinue. Um, we will see the temporary final state of the variety of theater and all of its staff. Um, we will get, you know, sort of the devil's justice uh, just leveled out, um, as well as just increasing chaos all the way around. Um, this is basically where we leave off. Like, again, all of what we've been reading so far has transpired over the course of two days in the course of the book. Like, the first day is the one where Berlioz dies, the second day is the show, and we are just embarking on the third day with our reading today as Rimsky takes off for Unknown Shores and the and Woland and company start accepting petitions from the aggrieved. Um, but where I want to start is right here in chapter 14, Glory to the Cock, um, as Rimsky is sort of reeling from the effects of the variety theater fiasco. Um, so you'll remember for the, the big, you know, Black Magic and its exposure show, some of the, the featured elements were the, the dissemination of lots and lots of magically created question mark, 10 ruble bills, even though Koroviev assured us that they were genuine. Um, and of course, the ladies, uh, the ladies shop that was opened up on stage and all these women came from the crowd um, and, you know, got fancy new Parisian fashions with the help of, you know, Behemoth acting, acting as tailor and Hela acting as uh, sort of guide and so on and so forth. Um, and the sort of exposure continues here as the, the show concludes. Apparently, as the variety theater is letting out, um, you know, Rimsky is making a making a break for it. Like, he, he sees that everything has gone horribly wrong. And at this point, since every other major, like, uh, major supervisor or leader of the the variety theater has at this point disappeared mysteriously specifically Lakodiev, um, Veronika and now Bengalski as well um, it's just gonna fall on Rimsky's head uh, but he can't even get out of the theater before he's seeing chaos ensue like we get this detail that apparently there are all these ladies now walking around in their underwear um Apparently, the magic clothes that they received during the show have magically disappeared again, uh, and they're walking around quite naked in the street. Um, so, naturally, riot ensues, and the police are trying to get involved. Rimsky just exits uh, quite conveniently to his office, at which point he is joined by, weirdly enough, Veronica. Um, who last we saw him, he was checking on the wire cage around the light bulb in the bathroom of the Variety Theater for some strange reason before he got, like, beaten up by Behemoth and Azazello and then kissed mysteriously by Hela, our mysterious vampiress woman member of the retinue. Um, so Rimsky is trying to, like, deal with the situation... Um, and has this really uncomfortable conversation with Veronuka, where Veronuka basically confirms that Lakodeev was in the Yalta bar, not Yalta the city, and that, like, apparently he got drunk with a couple of telegraph operators, and that's why the telegraph operators presumed to say that it was from Yalta. But notice that, like, the lies are blending into each other. Like, all of the potential explanations... Um, that Rimsky and Veronuka were coming up with a few chapters ago 
all of them are simultaneously true. Like, not only is Lakotiev not in Yalta, but he is at the bar that said it was Yalta. And not only did he, you know, like, bribe a telegraph operator, but, like, that also happened in addition to being at the bar in Yalta. Like, it's too much. And Rimsky finds himself not believing what Veronica tells him. Um, it's It's too convenient, too too much what they talked about and not enough like fact in its own right and what's more it doesn't line up with Lakotayev. like rimsky even notices that Lakotayev, yeah he is absolutely a drunk like he spends all of his time chasing after women and getting into trouble um but this is too much like th this is far too far for Lakotayev to have fallen um and we, we get this little passage on page 152. Um, Rimsky's needle-sharp glance pierced the administrator's face from across the desk, and the longer the man spoke, the grimmer those eyes became. The more lifelike and colorful the vile details with which the administrator furnished his story, the less the Finn director believed the storyteller. And when Veronuka told how Stiopa had let himself go so far as to try to resist those who came to bring him back to Moscow, the Finn director already knew firmly that everything the administrator who returned at midnight was telling him everything was a lie a lie from first word to last rimsky gets wise in short like all of the characters we've run into who have had their interactions with woland and company have ultimately been you know like convincing themselves that, that it's not true or in denial about it like bengalski who you know keep consistently assures everyone guys it's only a trick only to be told that he's lying and then get his head cut off um here we have rimsky meeting veronuka and rimsky knows like rimsky saw the show rimsky saw all the magic rimsky saw like the chaos that ensued he even saw the women's clothes starting to disappear in the middle of the the city streets rimsky knows something's up and as veronuka tries to reassure him no everything is just what we said it was rimsky is out like finally rimsky notices you know he looks over at veronuka sitting in the chair and he looks down at the shadow of the chair and notices that veronuka no longer casts a shadow like it is the shadow of the chair with no head cropping over the top of the chair and at this point veronuka realizes that rimsky knows and all hell breaks loose like hella is apparently beating at the window to come in veronuka is like trying to stop him but fortunately for rimsky at that moment the cock crows it's dawn and all these vampires disappear back into the night so Rimsky is out. Like, Rimsky just takes his money. He gets into the nearest cab. He's like, get me to the train station. I'll pay triple the fare. And I'll just get out of there. Like, Rimsky gets an express train. He's he's just so far. He is getting out of Moscow as fast as he humanly can. Which, honestly, is the smartest move. Like, Rimsky hasn't really done anything to warrant judgment as badly as, like, Lakota ever Veronuka has at this point. Rimsky seems to be pretty competent at his job, not in a position of power to abuse it so much. Like, if he had been embezzling money, sure, that would be another thing, but we don't see any evidence of that. He is the financial director, the Finn director. Um, he is basically the equivalent of a CFO. It doesn't seem like he's been abusing his position, and even though, like, he gets real close to being vampirized, by Veronuka and Hela, respectively. Fortunately, just dumb luck or whatever, he's he's saved and he he just gets out of Moscow. He is he is gone, um, and he doesn't even like try and try and protect himself or or bring money with him. Like he just is out as quickly as possible. Um, in the later chapter, where the the poor um, like assessor, the bookkeeper Vesely Stepanovich. Um, is trying to, like, figure out what the hell happened in the last 24 hours. Rimsky's wife calls, and she doesn't even know where he is. Um, like, at one point, you know, Rimsky's wife calls, and, like, nobody knows where anybody is at this point. All the staff is gone. Um, the ranking member is Vasily Stepanovich, the, the, like, bookkeeper. 
and they tell Rimsky's wife, you know, maybe you should call Rimsky's wife. And she's like, I am Rimsky's wife. And she bursts into tears. Um, so Rimsky doesn't try and protect himself. Rimsky doesn't try to save face. Rimsky does not go to the police. Rimsky just leaves. And it is the smartest move anyone targeted by Wolin's crew has made at this point in time. Um, he knows he has crossed supernatural forces and the Soviet party line no longer matters to him. Just getting the hell out of Dodge is his plan. Um, then our story switches and we meet another one of our former characters, Nikonor Ivanovich. Remember Nikonor Ivanovich? Last time we saw him, he was, you know, the big head honcho, the chairman of the apartment complex where Berlioz lives. And he was making some fairly shady deals with Woland, and then Woland's like, get rid of him. And as a result, his money turns into foreign currency, and he is found guilty of speculating in foreign currency. Well, we get to rejoin Nikonor Ivanovich. Um, we saw him briefly at the insane asylum, like the master mentioned that they brought in this guy who kept raving about currency and the ventilation. Um, we know we should be able to recognize that as Nikonor Ivanovich, but now we get to sort of see what happened to him. And again, we have another one of Bulgakov's like very veiled references to the secret police. Um, so he mentions, like, tipping to the reader, yes, this is Nikonor Ivanovich, who is in room 119 of Stravinsky's clinic. Um, but we also get this little paragraph early in chapter 15. Um, he got to Professor Stravinsky not at once, however, but after first visiting another place of this other place. Little remained in Nikonor Ivanovich's memory. He recalled only a desk, a bookcase, and a sofa. Notice again, we've got this very veiled reference to the secret police. Like, Nikonor Ivanovich undoubtedly was interrogated by the secret police, per possibly even tortured by them, but briefly. And notice why. Like, if you follow through this, this you know, half conversation, um, there a conversation was held with Nikonor Ivanovich, who had some sort of haze before his eyes from the rush of blood and mental agitation, but the conversation came out somewhat strange, muddled, or better to say, did not come out at all. The, first, the very first question put to Nikonor Ivanovich was the following. Are you Nikonor Ivanovich Bosoy, chairman of the House Committee at number 302 Biz on Setovaya Street? To this, Nikonor Ivanovich, bursting into terrible laughter, replied literally thus, I'm Nikonor, of course I'm Nikonor, but what the deuce kind of chairman am I? Meaning what? The question was asked with a narrowing of eyes. Meaning, he replied, that if I was chairman, I should have determined at once that he was an unclean power. Otherwise, what is it? A cracked pince-nez, all in rags? What kind of foreigner's interpreter could he be? Who are you talking about? Nikonor Ivanovich was asked. Koroviev! Nikonor Ivanovich cried out. Got himself lodged in our apartment number 50. Write it down! Koroviev! He must be caught at once. Write it down! The sixth entrance! He's there! Where did you get the currency? Nikonor Ivanovich was asked soulfully. As God is true, as God is almighty, Nikonor Ivanovich began. He sees everything and it serves me right. I never laid a finger on it, never even suspected what it was, this currency. God is punishing me for my iniquity. Nikonor Ivanovich went on with feeling, now buttoning, now unbuttoning his shirt, now crossing himself. I took, I took, but I took our Soviet money. I'd register people for money. I don't argue. It happened. Our secretary, Ben Sornev, is a good one, too. Another good one. Frankly speaking, there's nothing but thieves in the house management. But I never took currency. And everything just starts breaking down from there. Obviously, he's not in any state to be able to, like, actually answer questions. As we get a couple of paragraphs down, it says, It became perfectly clear that Nikonor Ivanovich was unfit for any conversation. He prays, he sobs, he gets transferred to the insane asylum, and that's the end of it for Nikonor Ivanovich's encounter with the secret police. Um, but notice, too, that Nikonor Ivanovich is totally giving over the party line at this point. Like, he literally says, as God is true, as God is almighty. He clearly believes at this point. He believes in God and wishes that he had followed God's commandments better. He believes in the devil and believes that his apartment has now become the seat of unclean powers, as he puts it. All of a sudden, Nikonor Ivanovich is back to the truth. And notice that this is, like, typically the best reaction that a person can have to encountering the devil. Like Ivan Homeless, who is now perfectly willing to talk to the master about his, you know, encounter with the devil. And this is the new Ivan Homeless, as opposed to the old Ivan Homeless. Now we have Nikonor Ivanovich undergoing a fairly similar transformation, where he used to be, you know, 
towing the party line in order to be able to keep his, you know, party leaders happy, now he is 100% willing to admit, yes, I did a bad thing, I forsook God, I allowed unclean powers into my house, and I am being punished for it. This is the correct response, in a sense. Like, as much as, you know, we saw early on the devil saying, I am the seventh proof, you know, you will die under the tram car, when faced with the reality of the devil... Many Moscow citizens seem apt to deny that it is the devil. They are trained by their party upbringing to pretend like it didn't happen. Um, Nikonor Ivanovich throws it over. Just like Rimsky getting out of town, Nikonor Ivanovich realizes he made a horrible mistake. Uh, but Nikonor Ivanovich has a dream that also sort of informs us as to what exactly is going on with him. And this is probably as close as Bulgakov is going to get to directly talking about the secret police. Namely, through this dream. Because the dream that Nikonor Ivanovich has is very much about the secret police, question mark? Like, it's really veiled and it's not clear and it's not meant to be clear. It is a dream. Like, it is meant to be surreal in a lot of ways. Um, but notice that what is going on in this dream, like they are all on, at this stage show and this apparent like performer or something, this master of ceremonies is calling people up to the stage and telling them to give up their, their foreign currency. Like we are having an investigation into foreign currency and here are all of these people who are guilty of harboring foreign currency. And notice that Nikonor Ivanovich seems to associate this with like, pernicious moral evil like if everyone just gave up their foreign currency then they would all be better for it and this is how it's framed like whoever this master of ceremonies is you know he he talks to people as though they don't know how to use the currency like money is precious and you are misusing it like the one guy is keeping it in like a candy box and he's like oh the rats are gonna get it they're going to destroy that perfectly good currency um there's something really weird. Like, it is meant to be surreal, but even more than that, just even the, the twisted logic of the money is something that children like you should not be able to play with. Um, Nikonor Ivanovich is admittedly beside himself because, you know, they ask him, like, where did you get the foreign currency? And he's like, it magically appeared. And they're like, oh, come on now. Like, we're all, we're all getting better. We're all fixing ourselves. It's like we're in Foreign Currency Anonymous over here. And Nikonor Ivanovich is like, no, really, it magically happened. And he's like, all right, sit down. If you're not ready, then we'll have somebody else come up. And they, they do. Like, three or four people come up and have these very strange reactions. You have the actor who goes up and, per, like, performs this thing from Pushkin, and then he apparently dies at one point, but it's unclear whether he, like dies as part of his performance or dies for real um, we get the guy who willingly gives up all the foreign currency and you know he is rewarded for this choice and then you know they get his aunt and they bring her to the woman's theater like it's a really weird and uncomfortable scene but notice the logic here Notice that all of these people are not being condemned or punished. Like, there's no beatings. There's no torture. Instead, there's just this hardcore brainwashing. Like, everyone is coming up to the stage insisting, yes, they were irresponsible. They shouldn't have speculated in foreign currency. It didn't belong to them. They didn't own it. There was nothing good that they could do about it. They were children, and they misused it. But it's money. Like... Obviously, currency is only useful insofar as it is to be spent. And yet, you know, the, this person, per, the performer, the per, person calling people up the stage is insisting, you know, you've got to protect it. You've got to keep it in banks. Um, you have to, you know, keep it in a cool, dry place. Like, that's the only way to properly treat currency, as though spending it is not even what you're supposed to do with it. Um there's a reversal here, which I think Bulgakov is kind of keen to notice. Like, as much as, again, it's just surreal and weird and uncomfortable, it's not surreal for surreality's sake. It's emphasizing a reversal of priorities. A person is worth less than the money they are harboring. A person is not, you know, considered competent or valuable in the eyes of the state which is especially weird because this is supposedly communism this is supposedly rule by the worker and yet the workers are being treated like children here 
Like they are irresponsible. Like they can't be trusted with valuables. Like they can't govern their own lives if given the chance. Like money entrusted to them is poorly entrusted. They do not deserve money, in short. Money is a luxury item that is best held in banks or by the rich people or by responsible people. And there's something very sick about this. And notice that Nikonor Ivanovich is succumbing to this. Like, he is being brainwashed here. His dream... In his dream, he wakes and agrees. Like, he did not, he did not deserve the currency. He should not have been harboring it. Even though he wasn't. Um, there's something very messed up about the scene that Bulgakov is showing us here and Nikonor Ivanovich's submission to it. But we transition from that scene directly to something even weirder, namely the scene of the execution. Um, now, most of the time, when I teach the, the Master and Margarita to my classes, I omit um, this chapter and the other chapters that have to do with, you know, the, the pilot novel. Um, as, you know, it was written by the Master as Homeless rec or like uh, recollects it as we get it throughout the course of the book. Because we do get the whole novel. Um, and this is an especially weird chapter even within the context of the pilot novel. Like, pilot does not appear in this particular chapter on the execution. Um, but I am going to talk about it here, in part so if you don't have to read it and study it, you can get the synopsis from me, in part because I imagine many of you have read it and would like some discussion about it, so we will talk about it here. Um, and again, this is a very strange chapter. Like, when last we left the pilot novel, Pilate had just condemned Yeshua to death, and Yeshua and the and company were getting marched off, you know, never to be seen again, up to the bald mountain where they were going to be executed, where they were to be crucified. Um, here, in this chapter, we end up following, you know, them getting marched up, um, and we get these descriptions of, like, the cordons of, of legionnaires sort of protecting the place, um, but we... The, the bulk of the chapter is actually told from Matthew Levi's perspective. And now remember, when we talked about Pilate several classes ago, I mentioned that he treats Matthew Levi as though Matthew has been repeating nothing but lies. Um, Matthew Levi is the famous gospel writer, the one that, at least according to, or at least as far as Bulgakov knew, wrote the first gospel and therefore is the, you know, primary gospel writer. But remember, Matthew Levi is a liar, as far as Bulgakov tells it. He's not trustworthy. Here we see that even if he isn't trustworthy, he is devoted. And this lines up with what we've seen of Matthew so far. Like, Yeshua, when describing Matthew, emphasized that Matthew follows him all over the place. Um, like, Yeshua can't go anywhere, say anything, do anything without Matthew, you know, following at his heels, writing it down, you know, inflating it to these epic, legendary characteristics. Here, we have a very strange little scene. Yeshua is being executed, and he is being protected. Um, the insinuation several times throughout the story is that Pilate anticipates revolt. Like, knowing that Yeshua was a popular preacher that a lot of people apparently took very seriously, he anticipates that his execution will be met with public unrest. Again, it's the Passover. Large Jewish gathering, lots of tension between the, the Jewish people and the Roman authorities. It could, you know burst into flame at any point. This is a fairly logical tinder point, so Pilate is taking his share of precautions. Um, there are some people who get to see the execution, but they are, like, ringed on both sides by legionaries. Um, they are very much, you know, kept together. And what's more, they don't actually revolt. The whole thing goes off without a hitch. It's very, very quiet. Um, Matthew is actually the only one who does seem to be planning violence, and he is completely incompetent at it. His original plan is he's going to, like, charge through the lines of the Roman legionaries with a knife, and he's going to stab Yeshua to kill him before he, you know, is tormented on the cross. And then, if all goes well, he'll be able to stab himself. But he doesn't have a knife. Like, he, he came completely knifeless. Um, apparently, what happened is Matthew, like, got sick all of a sudden after entering Yerushalayim um, and hasn't been able to follow Yeshua around for a few days. So he's been outside of the city. And when he finally, you know, recovers, 
it's too late. Yeshua has already been executed. Like he shows up just in time to see Yeshua led to execution. He missed the entire conversation with Judas. He missed Pilate and Yeshua's conversation. Like Matthew Levi has been nowhere to be found for the last few days. And now he regrets it terribly. Um, so he's in Yerushalayim. He's trying to find some way to get to Yeshua and can't because again, Pilate has taken precautions. He is protected. Um, what Matthew ends up doing is he goes into a bread shop and he like pulls this little trick where he asks somebody to get like bread from the top shelf and then he steals a bread knife and he's like off, but it's too late and already Yeshua has been strung up on the cross. So Matthew ends up climbing up the other side of the mountain and sort of nestling himself into some little like cave or crevice somewhere where he can watch everything that's going on and he's praying. Like he prays fervently and then starts blaspheming like he asks god to strike yeshua dead so he doesn't have to to suffer anymore and nothing happens so matthew starts cursing god and blaspheming and and then there's a storm like in case it isn't obvious this is a radical deviation from the gospel accounts um, for one thing, in the Gospels, um, in the, the three synoptic Gospels, as well as the Gospel of John, it's recorded that quite a few of Jesus's companions and followers were allowed to, to sort of participate or at least observe. Um, Jesus's mother was supposedly there, along with Joseph of Arimathea, who ends up being the guy who contributes the tomb to Jesus's death. Um, many of the disciples are, in fact, in hiding, according to the Gospels. Um, Peter especially has this whole scene where like he's asking about what happened to Jesus and, and people are like oh I, don't you know I thought you were one of his followers and he denies it three times um, because he's scared of also getting arrested and potentially executed like nobody knows what's happening um, it's actually this famous scene like Peter's failure to you know defend his his supposed messiah um, so the disciples may or may not be at the actual execution, but at the very least, it also goes off without a hitch. No riot, but, you know, relatively orderly. Unlike Matthew, you know, hiding in a crevice, watching this execution as Jesus receives no attention, as Yeshua, you know, is not even visited by family or friends. Yeshua dies alone um, in this case, like no one to watch, no one to protect him. Um, and then this storm comes down, like it starts raining really badly. And right as the sky is starting to get dark, we switch back away from Levi's perspective. And instead, we hang out with the legionnaires a little bit. Rat Slayer, in particular, gets a command, apparently from Pilate. Um, and Pilate sends someone with a sponge and a spear. Um, and he, like, sticks the sponge on the spear and, like, fills it with water and, you know, sort of pokes at Yeshua. Um, Yeshua gets to drink from the sponge, and then they kill him. They stab him through the heart. Again, totally different from the gospel account. Like, Jesus is, in fact, stabbed with a spear, but it's in the lung, and it's, like, just to verify whether or not he's dead. Um, here, Yeshua is very much alive, and it is emphasized that Pilate orders a mercy killing. What Levi prays for and what doesn't happen is ultimately commanded by Pilate. This is the least that Pilate can do. And again, this is an order from offstage. Like, we never see Pilate give the command. Um, but the command comes. And one of Pilate's agents shows up with the spear, stabs him, and even Bulgakov is a little touchy about this. Like, he, he just says that he, like, pokes him in the heart and the blood comes down. Um, but that's, he dies immediately afterwards. So we know that this is a mercy killing. And Pilate even says, you know, it is praise the magnanimous hegemon, um, he whispers, and then he pricks Yeshua. Um, and then they kill Dismas as well. The same is offered to him. Like, Yeshua specifically says, let Dismas, the other thief, drink. Dismas is the only one that is lucid. Gestus has apparently gone nuts from the, the heat. Um, and is just like, babbling incoherently to himself um so dismas also enjoys the mercy of the hegemon of Pilate um from a distance and then they just leave him there like all three of them are dead the storm comes and the legionnaires just take off 
abandoning the three bodies on the crosses. And this is when Matthew Levi creeps out of hiding, cuts Jesus's or Yeshua's body down, and then on second thought, cuts down the bodies of the two thieves as well, and then runs off with Yeshua's body. Now, this seems kind of weird, but this is especially significant from Bulgakov's perspective. The issue of the body is a big deal. Um, according to the Gospel account, Jesus resurrects from the dead. Like, on the third day after the execution, um, two of the ladies go to the tomb to anoint his body with oil, and they find that the tomb has been opened, like the stone has been rolled away, the body is missing, and according to the gospel accounts, there's an angel sitting on the inside with all these nicely wrapped linens saying, he is not here, he is risen. Um, he has been resurrected. And according to several of the gospel accounts, Jesus appears to the disciples at various occasions after his death, preaching, teaching, doing normal Jesus stuff. Um, before ascending into heaven and disappearing forever at Pentecost. But I should emphasize, at both the time, like in the first century AD, as well as hundreds of years afterwards, it has often been argued by people who disbelieve in Christianity, uh, by atheists, by critics, by skeptics, that jesus's body was stolen by the disciples like apparently this is the, the sticking point for many many skeptics um and as a consequence they argue that the reason why the body was missing from the tomb why it's reported that the body is missing from the tomb is not because jesus was was risen from the dead but because the disciples stole the body and then circulated this rumor that jesus's jesus had raised had been risen from the dead um Notice, that's exactly the story we get here. We get the story of Matthew Levi coming to the cross after the bodies have been abandoned, cutting down all three bodies, presumably to cover his tracks, because they like are getting flooded at this point, and then carrying off Yeshua's body, presumably so he can circulate the rumor that Yeshua was risen from the dead. And notice how this dovetails with a lot of what Bulgakov has told us about both Yeshua and Matthew Levi at this point. The story of the disciples stealing the body and circulating these rumors about the risen Messiah would fit perfectly with Matthew's character. We have already seen that he is circulating stories that aren't have no reality, that he is exaggerating Yeshua's teachings, that where Yeshua is a good man, Matthew is making him out to be God or the son of God or something comparable. Now, I don't know what Bulgakov's own position is as far as whether or not Jesus lived, whether or not Jesus was Messiah, like... There's certainly no indication in any of his writings that he was a Christian. It is also extremely dangerous for him to say that he was a Christian. Again, just by writing the story of Pilate, he got into big trouble with numerous critics. And he knew that this story was not going to fly past the Soviet censors. And that in all likelihood, this was be the, would be the book that damned him. That's why he burned it in the first place, as we discussed. Um, what does seem likely is this story was as close to what the censors would accept as anything that Bulgakov was likely to write. Maybe Bulgakov was an atheist, maybe Bulgakov was a Christian. At any rate, this version of the story lines up with the story that a lot of Soviet censors would accept. It's certainly not as good as Jesus was a myth and all the accounts of him are, are just mythologized nonsense, but it certainly lines up a lot closer with that than an actual you know, retelling of the biblical account. Um, so we'll come back to this because this is not the end of the story by a long shot. Um, Matthew disappearing the body is just one more step in the story as it develops, so we'll revisit this when we get back to what the measures that Pilate takes in the, the third and fourth chapter of the story considerably later on in part two. Um, but keep this in mind, that Bulgakov is, is walking a fairly fine line here, and while it's not clear where exactly he lands, the story that he is telling us does fit with what the censors are, are sort of okay with. At, at, 
the very outermost edge, perhaps, of what they're okay with. But notice, too, very importantly, Pilot's role. Note that, you know, note that Pilot does take mercy on Yeshua. This is an attempt to make things right. Um, Pilot cannot save him. That's beyond his power. Remember, the hair hanging by which Yeshua's head hangs was hung by Caesar, not by Pilot. Um, but Pilate does the best that he can under the circumstances and will continue to do the best that he can. But notice, too, what Bulgakov is saying about truth here. Remember, this is one of the key themes that we've been running into. A lot of the reasons that, you know, Woland gets especially excited or, you know, people get offed is because they refuse to tell the truth. Bengalski, for lying, gets his head cut off. Pilate, for lying gets to save his life um, but is ultimately condemned by generations to come notice what this what truth looks like in this situation notice that Matthew is having a really difficult time dealing with the truth here and this is contributing to sort of a mythologization of Jesus as Bulgakov is telling it yes Yeshua was a good man we saw that back in chapter 2 in his first encounter with Pilate. But notice how the two stories were getting. Pilate's, you know, state-approved, Caesar-approved story and, on the other hand, Matthew Levi's story are both lies, but lies from differing perspectives. On the one hand, Pilate has to tell the lie for fear of dying. He has to lie and say that Jesus is a threat to the emperor. He has to lie and say the emperor's regime will last forever, even though he believes that it's not true. Um, that lie is the state-approved lie. But the lie that Matthew Levi seems to be building here, the lie that he is constructing that enshrines Yeshua as this, you know, saintly messianic figure, this one who, you know, ordered the temple condemned and destroyed, um, we see that lie is still a lie, even though it is contrasted with the state-approved lie. The truth, what Bulgakov is telling us, what, you know, Bulgakov with his omniscient voice in these passages is letting us into is a very tricky thing to walk here. Um, it is dangerous on either side. It is easy to wander off from the truth and end up with what Caesar wants you to believe on the one hand or what Matthew is sort of inspiring you to believe on the other hand. Um, so let's watch that as we go forward because I'm pretty sure that's, that's something that Bulgakov is very, very interested in and preoccupied with here. It's a story, it's a theme that he is keen to evaluate. And you'll notice Bulgakov is pretty intolerant of lies. But Matthew doesn't get punished. Matthew's cowardice, Matthew's, you know, up-jumped version of the truth doesn't seem to be condemned nearly as much as Pilate's, you know, truth or lie for the sake of saving his own skin. Um, so we will come back to that. Um, but then in chapter 17 and 18, we get like really the climax of what's been happening in Moscow so far. Um, in chapter 17, An Unquiet Day, we follow around Vasily Stepanovich Lastochkin, who is the ranking member of the Variety Theater now that Lakodiev is banished to Yalta, Rimsky drove off in the night, and Verumikin is apparently a vampire. Um, and Lastochkin, you know, Vasily Stepanovich basically is just trying to do his normal job. He's got all the money from last night, like 22,000 rubles, a major haul for the theater, and he's got to deposit it. That's all he has to do. That's his only job for today. But the whole thing is just fraught with chaos. Much of it we already know, like the fact that, you know, all these people are calling in saying, you know, where is Lakodiev? Where is Rimsky? Where is uh, Verumikin? All of these ranking members of the theater have just vanished and there's no accountability and nobody's giving orders. And now it's up to poor Vasily Stepanovich to sort of like figure out what the heck is going on. Um, what's more, though, they're supposed to put on another show like 
remember the posters are originally saying that it's like a two-week showing and you know every night it's going to be more and more woland performing black magic and exposing it obviously we can't do that anymore like they practically killed bengalski um arkady apolonovich is disgraced and an inquiry is being conducted all these women showed up in the streets and their clothes disappeared like this is a giant national scandal and already you can see the secret police are starting to investigate the situation um throughout this chapter you will get like various commissions being invaded by cops sort of showing up and ushering people out of the building for like uh interrogation things are getting very bad um, and it takes like half the chapter before they can even get to the point where they're canceling the show. And at this point, there's a huge line there and the police are already there making sure the line doesn't get out of hand. Unfortunately, everyone just kind of goes home quietly. But even so, like it's chaos all the way down. What's more, you know, poor Vasily Stepanovich is like trying to find where to deposit this. He goes to the, the Spectacles Commission, which is apparently a related office Probably similar to the Acoustics Commission, but, you know, just another level of bureaucracy that governs a multitude of theaters, probably overseeing, you know, various government entities like Masalit and the Variety Theater. Um, so poor Vasily Stepanovich takes the money to the Spectacles Commission, wants to go see, you know, the guy who he's supposed to report to, Prokhor Petrovich, and finds out that Prokhor Petrovich's secretary is also beside herself. She is weeping openly because Prokhor Petrovich has been disappeared as well. In a very strange way, I might add. Apparently, Prokhor Petrovich was visited by, shocker, a giant cat. And said giant cat tried to come into the office and the, the secretary is like, get out of here, you're, you're a cat. Scat, she, she says. And instead we get a cat-like short person coming in, barging past her and immediately demanding to see Prokhor Prokhorich. So let's, let's look at this because this is kind of just thoroughly entertaining. Um, we get Anna Richardovna, the, the secretary's account, starting on about page 187. Um, imagine I'm sitting here, Anna Richard, Richardovna recounted, shaking with agitation, again clutching at the bookkeeper's sleeve, and a cat walks in. Black, big as a behemoth. Of course, I shout scat to it. Out it goes, and in comes a fat fellow instead, also with a sort of cat-like mug, and says, What are you doing, citizeness? Shouting scat at visitors, and whoosh, straight to Prokhor Petrovich. Of course, I run after him, shouting, Are you out of your mind? And this brazen face goes straight to Prokhor Petrovich and sits down opposite him in the armchair. Well, that one, he's the kindest-hearted man, but edgy. He blew up. I don't deny it. An edgy man works like an ox. He blew up. Why do you barge in here unannounced, he says, and that brazen face. Imagine, sprawls in the armchair and says, smiling, I've come, he says, to discuss a little business with you. Prokhor Petrovich blew up again. I'm busy. And the other one just think answers, you're not busy with anything. Eh? Well, here, of course, Prokhor Petrovich's patience ran out and he shouted, What is all this? Get him out of here, devil take me! And that one, imagine, smiles and says, Devil take you? That, in fact, can be done. And bang! Before I had time to scream, I look. The one with the cat's mug is gone and the, there sits the suit! And she bursts into tears. We've gotten the description at this point. Apparently, the suit it has taken over Prokhor Petrovich's job. On page 186, we get... At a huge writing desk with a massive inkstand, an empty suit sat and with a dry pen not dipped in ink traced on a piece of paper. The suit was wearing a necktie, a fountain pen stuck from his pocket, but above the collar there was neither neck nor head, just as there were no hands sticking out of the sleeves. The suit was immersed in work and completely ignored the turmoil that reigned around it. Hearing someone come in, the suit leaned back and from above the collar came the voice, quite familiar to the bookkeeper of Prokhor Petrovich. What is this? Isn't it written on the door that I'm not receiving? So, when Prokhor Petrovich shouts at Behemoth, Devil take me, Behemoth agrees and does take him and the suit remains in Prokhor Petrovich's chair doing all of his work as though Prokhor Petrovich is not even necessary to the task what's more like Vasily Stepanovich is is also being frustrated by the the cabbies like he goes to 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 try and take a cab and can't 
like he he walks toward the, uh, the three cabs that are sitting on the side of the road and all three of them take off empty like they completely refuse the fare a fourth one drives up and he like signals for it and he's like the driver immediately demands that he show his money and when he does the 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 um the cab driver refuses to take him because he's got a 10 ruble bill notice he refuses specifically the 10 rubles he actually asks do you have any three ruble bills and he will take the three ruble bills but notice the cab driver protests against the 10 ruble bills specifically because they are no good this is not just an inflation issue this is magic so he says, a pocket full of change, the driver bawled, and the eyes in the mirror went bloodshot. It's my third case today. The same thing happens with the others, too. Some son of a bitch gives me a tenner, I give him change. 450. He gets out, the scum. About five minutes later, I look. Instead of a tenner, it's a label from a seltzer bottle. Here the driver under, uttered several unprintable words. Another one, behind, beyond Zuprovskaya, a tenner. I give him three rubles change. He leaves, I go to my wallet, there's a bee there. Zap in the finger. Ah, you... And again, the driver pasted on some unprintable words. And no tenor. Yesterday, in the variety here, unprintable words, some vermin of a conjurer did a seance with ten ruble bills, unprintable words. Notice, the money that was distributed during the black magic and its exposure has also disappeared, just like the lady's clothes. It has been transformed into the labels of seltzer bottles. It is transformed into a bee of all things. Um, we will hear from the barkeep who was working at the, the buffet during the theater that all of his money got transformed into little, like, scraps of paper. Um, the $10 ruble bills are all vanishing, just like the ladies' garments, leaving people with no money. But notice, too, that Poland is kind of okay with this like notice that this is actually a part of his judgment as we'll talk about a little while later but before we do that let's cover poor Vasily Stepanovich's last adventures of the day namely after trying to meet with Prokhor Petrovich and failing he actually leaves the spectacles commission and goes to the spectacles commission affiliate because of course we've got yet another crazy layer of bureaucracy between him and actually just depositing his money and in this case, he's got a new problem. Namely, apparently this affiliate is, has been run by like this one fairly eccentric party member who is extremely high-ranking and therefore can like do favors and stuff. Uh, but he's gotten it into his head to start all these clubs. Like uh, one of the employees notices um, that he's got like a checkers club and a, and a like um, uh, a ping pong club, a chess club, a horseback riding club like and now for the summer he wants to create all this canoeing club and alpinism club and apparently he wants to start a choir club um so today during lunch break the manager comes in with some son of a bitch on his arm the girl went on hailing from nobody knows where in wretched checkered checkered trousers a cracked pince-nez and with a completely impossible mug we should all recognize Koroviev at this point and straight away, the girl said he recommended him to all those eating in the affiliate's dining room as a prominent specialist in organizing choral singing clubs. Now, all of these people immediately sign up because, again, they want to get in with this, you know, head honcho of the party. But it turns out that when they all gather for their first meeting, when, like, Koroviev directs them for the first time, Koroviev, like, takes off and then tells them they'll, he'll be back in ten minutes. And he isn't. He doesn't come back. But in ten minutes, they all are forcefully singing the second verse. And ten minutes later, they're singing the third verse. And ten minutes after that, they're all sitting at their desks trying to avoid this. And yet they all strike up singing again. So this affiliate is apparently compelled to sing. Like the choir keeps turning up. And finally, a bunch of like ambulances and police cars show up to like cart them all off. And then the, the drivers are all singing along. Um, like, everybody who gets exposed to this is singing for forcibly as though they have no free will. Um, then last but not least, Vasily Stepanovich finally turns, goes back to the variety, is trying to turn over the cash, and it turns out it's all foreign money. Like, it's all dollars and, and lira, and it's just a giant pile of contraband. 
So naturally, Vasily Stepanovich also gets arrested. Like, notice just how this is all escalated at this point. We went from Wolin taking on, like, a couple people at a time. Berlioz gets decapitated. Homeless running around the city in his in his pajama pants. Lakodiev disappearing to Yalta. Veronuka, you know, like beaten up and turned into a vampire Bengalski decapitated but now all Moscow is going nuts everyone associated with Masalita the Variety Theater is losing their minds like they're all being magically afflicted the cab drivers are being pestered with these $10 bills that are disappearing in the middle of the day you've got you know all the ladies garments disappearing right off their bodies like all Moscow is in chaos the cops are running nuts trying to keep it under control the secret police are just bagging people left and right it's a giant mess and it just gets more and more chaotic as time goes on um, we see the sort of culmination of this in this last chapter, Hapless Visitors. And finally, we see the devil and his retinue one more time. Now, notice we get a fairly interesting perspective to start with here. Um, we're meeting for the first time Berlioz's uncle, which Berlioz even like mentions his uncle way back in chapter one, which you probably forgot. It's totally warranted. It's like a one-line throwaway reference. But the uncle shows up. Maximilian Andreevich Poplovsky shows up. He is an industrial economist working outside of the city, but he's been angling to get into Moscow for a while. And when he gets the report that Berlioz is dead, he's thinking to himself, ah, I'm going to be able to get his apartment and I'm going to turn it into my own purposes. But notice too how he's informed. He gets a telegram and it says, have just been run over by tramcar at Patriarch's Ponds, funeral Friday, 3 p.m. Come, Berlioz. Like, he gets a telegram addressed to him from Berlioz, the dead guy. Now, as it happens, it turns out that it was Behemoth who sent it. Like, you know, poor Maximilian Andreevich shows up and is, like, indignantly demanding uh, that he, you know, get access to this apartment as the sole inheritor of Berlioz's estate. And, of course, Korovia, like has nothing to do with him he's just like dismissing him in a moment behemoth is actually the one who sent the telegram and he points to behemoth and he's like he sent him and we get this actual pretty decent conversation with behemoth here where um like he says well so i sent the telegram what of it and maximilian andreevich is kind of beside himself and behemoth presses the issue and then turns it into an inquiry. Like he demands his passport and he's looking over the passport. He's holding it upside down and like, mm, I wouldn't have given you a passport if I had given it. Like it just gets nuts. And finally Popovsky is just dismissed. Like he disappears and Azazello beats him over the head with a roast chicken. Like it just gets out of control and Popovsky just takes off. Like forget it. He's not going to get the apartment. He's smart enough to realize when he's been beaten both literally and figuratively, but he does hide out in the stairs as another person comes up to petition Woland and company um, and sort of watches as this guy also gets turned out. And in this case, it's like I said, the barkeep from the buffet the other day, he's come to demand his money. Um, like he's close enough to the whole mass elite business to, to see, you know, that, uh, like the Woland is supposedly taking up at Berlioz's old address so he shows up says that he was cheated because he you know got all those 10 ruble bills and Woland turns them back into 10 ruble bills for him but notice like even at this moment the the poor barkeep is you know worried that they're going to transform back so he kind of like spends them really quickly to get rid of them um, but notice too the way that Woland talks about this First off, Wollen gets mad at him because of the food. Um, like, the barkeep was serving sturgeon and, and, like, booze and others and tea from a samovar. And Wollen notes that he's serving, like, crappy food, that it, the fish is not fresh. And the barman responds that it was of the second freshness. And Wollen's like, dude, there's only one kind of freshness. It's either fresh or it's not fresh. That's it. Like, you don't get a second round of freshness. This is just a level of, you know, Soviet bureaucracy that is interfering with, you know, common sense. Much like a lot of what we've seen in this book. The idea that something can be of secondary freshness, i.e. it's not fit for, you know, party members or high-paying customers or foreigners, but it is still good enough to serve at a theater... 
Like, that's some pretty messed up uh, reasoning here. Um, but notice when he complains about the money, Woland actually gives it to him. Like, again, it's it's fake bills. They'll disappear as soon as he spends them. The, the poor doctor is going to, you know, get attacked by a kitten and then a sparrow. Um, but the notice that Woland talks about the money as another act of black magic and its exposure. Um, so notice, like, Woland explains his whole behavior here on page 205. Um, so the barman says, yesterday you were so good as to do some conjuring tricks. I, the magician exclaimed in amazement, good gracious, it's somehow even unbecoming to me. I'm sorry, said the barman, taking the back. I mean, the seance of black magic. Ah, yes, yes, yes. My dear, I'll reveal a secret to you. I'm not an artiste at all. I simply wanted to see the Muscovites en masse, and that could be done most conveniently in a theater. And so my retinue, he nodded in the direction of the cat, arranged for this seance, and I merely sat and looked at the Muscovites. Now don't go changing countenance, but tell me, what is it in connection with this seance that has brought you to me? Notice that just as we had deduced that, you know, here was Wolin sitting in front of this crowd saying, have they changed, yes or no, and then getting this opportunity to watch as the, the you know, as the people react to what both Koroviev and, and Behemoth are doing, here he confirms it. He just went to see the Muscovites en masse. He went to observe. That was always the intention. But notice the barman persists. If you please, you see, among other things, there were banknotes flying down from the ceiling. The barman lowered his voice and looked about abashedly. So they snatched them all up. And then a young man comes to my bar and gives me a 10 ruble bill. I give him 8.50 and change. Then another one, also a young man. No, an older one. Then a third and a fourth. I keep giving them change. And today I went to check the cash box and there, instead of money, cut up paper. They hit the buffet for 109 rubles. Aye, 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 the artist, artiste exclaimed, but can they have thought those were real bills? I can't admit the idea that they did it knowingly. The barman took a somehow hunched and anguished look around him, but said nothing. Can they be crooks? The magician asked worriedly of his visitor. Can there be crooks among the Muscovites? The barman smiled so bitterly in response that all doubts fell away. Yes, there were crooks among the Muscovites. Notice what Woland is getting at here. Like, as much as he's not saying it directly, notice how he is following the game that all the Soviets have been playing this entire time. Like, remember all the way back to Bengalski, you know, trying to save face in front of the bigwigs um, at the theater, saying, you know, oh, well, it's just trickery, it's all technique, it's all deception, you know, it's all mass hypnosis. If this is the case... Why did the people of Moscow spend this money? Why did the ladies of Moscow wear those garments? Didn't they know that they were just hypnotized? Didn't they know that it wasn't real? Are there crooks in Moscow? Notice what Woland is doing here. How Woland, through this test, through these magical disappearing bills and these magical disappearing clothes, he's emphasizing that the people do believe in this stuff obviously or they wouldn't have tried to spend you know their fake currency or they wouldn't have tried to you know go out wearing their fake clothes Woland performed black magic under the assumption that everyone knew it was just magic bengalski literally told it to them to their face now admittedly Korovieva says that the rubles were legitimate that they were you know that they were true um and for all we know they were just temporarily but at the end of the day, if the people were so, in fact, suspicious of the money, then why were they spending it? Besides the fact that they could be crooks. And notice that, again, like, when we saw the theater playing out, like, a couple people take off the buffet really early. Like, as soon as the money comes down, they shoot off to the buffet. Those people were crooks. They clearly understood that the money was going to disappear, that it wouldn't hold out, that it was hypnosis or whatever. So they tried to spend it, and they did. They did it successfully, and this guy bore the brunt of it. But notice that Woland plays fair with him. He also gives him the chance to spend fake money. Like, the guy knows it's fake, and notice that when he does spend it, he does so cautiously. Like, he goes to this doctor to get himself checked out, because Wolin just told him he's going to die of liver cancer in nine months. So he's, like, immediately going to a specialist to get checked out. He takes, you know, he gives him some legitimate money. 
like a few three ruble bills to pay him for his services and then as a second thought he takes the entire packet of money the whole 109 rubles that was you know just wads of paper like that disappeared and puts it on top of the pile not as payment like he's honest enough to pay the guy for real as well but because he wants to get rid of it because he recognizes you know it's no harm no foul like he too performs a slight lie here is slightly a crook woland is revealing this about him as well that's the game that woland is playing here like that's part of that exposed black magic not like the magic magic but like the black magic of arkady apolonovich who has created this bureaucratic pose so he can you know sleep with young actresses despite his, his wife's uh not knowing this is still what woland is doing woland is calling out moscow like oh you really don't believe in magic okay here's a bunch of magical 10 ruble bills are you going to spend them or not? Here's a bunch of magical, you know, outfits from Paris. Are you going to wear them or not? Oh, so you believe them then. You believe it's okay to spend fake money, to wear fake clothes. Well, that's on you then. Woland exposes them. He reveals them. He disseminates these nonsense lies, these illusions, in order to show the truth. Like... That's kind of been his game the whole time. Now, we leave off here at the end of part one, and this is sort of the coda that Woolen gives us. Um, like, we see this guy running off to a doctor's, and we see the doctor, like, dealing with the magical transforming money as it transforms into a first a cat, and then a sparrow, and then it, like, flies away, and he thinks he's getting cheated by one of his other customers before ultimately just, like, feeling sick and lying down and putting leeches on his own face because he just feels so miserable this is the chaos that woland leaves moscow in all chaos of its own devising mind you woland is just exposing the corruption of the people like he's done very little besides a couple of strategic assassinations and a couple of judgments um and you know that whole illusory ten dollar bill business but generally speaking, he is just showing us what is so broken about Moscow society at this point. He is calling a spade a spade. He is a force that must be reckoned with, a force that these people cannot deny. All we can see is how they react. We can see, just like Woland saw from his position on the stage, how every audience member responds to this. We get Berlioz denying it and turning it over to the secret police, and he is executed. We get Bengalski lying to save face, and he is decapitated, although it's reattached later. We have Rimsky, who figures out what's going on and takes off, heads for the hills. We get Poplovsky, Berlioz's uncle, who realizes, because he is an intelligent man, that he's not winning this fight and he just goes back home where he came from to avoid all of this craziness. But remember what Woland originally said at the show. These are just ordinary people. These are the correct responses in many ways. Pe these people have not changed. Yes, there are crooks among the Muscovites. There have always been crooks among everyone at all times. Yes, there are people who are exploiting and abusing their power, and they are getting punished for it. If there is something different, it's the housing question, yes. But that's it. It's still people in power taking advantage of people without power. It's still people without power trying to get what little power they can through whatever duplicitous ways they might. Moscow has changed under the soviet regime but not as dramatically as you might think and for all that the muscovites are telling themselves that they are you know learned and they see through superstition and you know they they believe new things they don't believe the old lies woolen sees through that woolen sees through all of that he sees through all of the lies that these people are telling themselves the lies that they are you know perpetrating against each other Woolen cuts through it all, and he sees clearly. He exposes. That's what he does. The black magic of Soviet regimes enforcing their will on people beneath them is dispelled here, using a little bit of good old-fashioned satanic black magic. That's the truth that we get at. That's what Woland is here to do. Woland ultimately comes away believing that things are not that different. And notice what that says from Bulgakov's perspective. 
Notice that even though Bulgakov has been quick to emphasize, you know, how horrifying it was not being able to publish the truth, how, you know, duplicitous he ended up having to be, how bad all these writers and artists have become in trying to, like, suck up to this regime. Notice that despite all that, Bulgakov is, at the end of the day, making a fairly optimistic account of Soviet Russia. Like, at this point, you've probably encountered at least some variation on, you know, literature condemning an oppressive regime, whether it was The Crucible or Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon or An American in the Gulag or um, Ivan Denisovich's um, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Um, all of these works we usually associate with the Stalinist regime and how oppressive it is. But notice that Bulgakov is emphasizing something different. Namely that it hasn't changed all that much. Like, people are still people. Under Stalin, under Mussolini, under Hitler, people are still people. Yes, they can be persuaded to do utterly horrible things, as we saw with both like the people who helped the bureaucratic process of setting up the concentration camps under Hitler, and as we see the giant nightmarish bureaucratic bureaucracy that surrounds all these people getting kicked out of their homes or run away by the secret police here in Bulgakov's novel. But at the end of the day, they're still people. They're still fighting each other for little successes and accomplishments. They're still trying to get ahead of one another. They're still selfish, but occasionally merciful, as Woland is quick to point out during the show. Bulgakov is saying that Moscow is still a human place. A place where humans live human lives. A place corrupted by this whole housing problem, but not irrevocably. People haven't changed. Human nature hasn't changed. Arguably, for all of our discussion of all these 500 years of, you know, modern history, for all of my emphasis on, you know, here's the way that science is changing, here's the way that religion is changing, here's the way that literature is changing, and here's the way that art is changing... People haven't changed. The same selfish, greedy people who we saw being punished by Dante's demons way back in, you know, Dante's Inferno are people being punished by Woland here in Stalinist Russia. The crimes have not changed. People are still greedy. People are still unkind to one another. But people are still occasionally merciful. People still fall in love. All this is true. All this has always been true change the world as much as we might some things stay the same and continue to stay the same like i write this i'm saying this in the last stages of covid i hope like the vaccine is out people are getting it like it's it's a thing at this point and yet you know even in the year of 2020 and 2021 even all of us stuck quarantined and political violence and you know capital riots and and the trump presidency turning over into the biden presidency and all the craziness that came along with that at the end of the day we're still people just like bulgakov's soviet citizens just like you know marlowe and milton and the people in the enlightenment and the people under romanticism and the people in the renaissance we're all a little greedy and a little merciful and trying to get along and trying to be good, but also trying to, you know, stay alive, keep our heads afloat. Bulgakov, at the end of the day, is saying, you know, human beings, humanity endures, even in this rather unpleasant situation. Bulgakov has the most generous take on Soviet Russia that you are likely to read. It's not forgiving it, like, it's not overlooking its faults, but it is emphasizing as much as you know all of the bad things are here there are a lot of good things too Griboyadovs is still a really cool place to hang out and their perch is to die for even if it is all mired in corruption and privilege and party politics it's not that bad